crossings, the refugee experience in America. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Actually, all of these songs, whether they are jubilees or sorrow songs, they always express these two poles of the enslaved African experience. One pole, the despair and the the sadness and the sense of hopelessness, and then the other emotional pole, the joy, the hope, the triumph. In that great getting up morning, fare you well, fare you well. In that great getting up morning, fare you well, fare you well. Today we visit with Dr. Arthur C. Jones, author of Wade in the Water, The Wisdom of Spirituals, now in its third printing. Trained in clinical psychology, Dr. Jones, who taught at the University of Denver, has been a chorister, a recitalist, and founder of the Spirituals Project based in Denver, Colorado. Dr. Jones presents perspectives on how the powerful art form of spirituals was forged into expression by enslaved Africans and embodies two poles of their experiences, the trauma and suffering of a people and the joy of community, even as a community in crisis. It is also part of our journey into the story of the Underground Railroad, one we chose to feature as part of our assessment of immigrant, refugee, and asylee stories. Of course, enslaved Africans were not willing immigrants to North and Central America, nor refugees. Seized from their native land, personal security, families, and culture, they were subjected to slavery. Many worked to escape from captivity and endangerment. In some ways, that part of the story the assisted or self-abolition and migration to relative freedom in parts of America and Canada resonates with the refugee and asylee experience, as does the trauma of family separation and physical and emotional abuse they experienced. We are joined by a friend of the podcast as our interviewer, Pauletta Jackson, joined the Spirituals Project Choir, making a connection to her ancestors through song. She says... Belonging to a community choir that shares the same interest in the history as well as the singing of these songs is something I will always cherish. Growing up, I listened to my parents sing spirituals in our home and listened to my church family sing spirituals at Zion Baptist Church, where I met M. Roger Holland II, who introduced me to the Spirituals Project Choir. Songs sung by enslaved Africans in America during the 1800s brings joy to my soul, she says, as I draw strength for the journey ahead. To borrow an excerpt from our choir mission statement that speaks the emotions of my heart, spirituals uplift in times of crisis, heal, comfort, inspire. Here is Arthur C. Jones, interviewed by Pauletta Jackson, 
on Crossings, the Refugee Experience in America. Dr. Jones, we're so happy to have you here today for the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Can you tell us a bit about your background in music and education? Certainly. Uh, the story is kind of a long, winding story, but let me just give you the, the key highlights of that. It really started when I was in high school. Uh, I grew up in New York City, and I sang in a an elite choir that was a citywide choir that was organized by the Department of Education in the New York public school system. And it was called the All City High School Chorus. And it was my first introduction to any kind of formal music at a high level. We had our concerts were at Carnegie Hall and at Lincoln Center. And when I was a when I was a senior in high school, I was picked to sing a solo in one of the songs in a televised concert at Lincoln Lincoln Center. But after that point, when I went to college, I didn't really think that music was going to be something that I could pursue as a career. I didn't think it was practical. My brother in my family was the only other person who had ever gone to college. He was 14 years older than me, and he was a psychologist by the time I started college. And I initially thought I would do anything other than what my brother did. But I did find that I really enjoyed psychology, and so I became a clinical psychologist. And for many, many years, that experience with music from high school was just kind of in the rearview mirror. And it wasn't until I turned 40 that I realized that I should be singing again, and I just had this yearning to be singing again. So I, I hired a voice teacher, and I started taking lessons, and then I started doing formal recitals, and then eventually... I ended up I ended up volunteering to perform a concert on uh, do a program actually a lecture concert program on spirituals for the Denver Museum of Natural History and it was through doing that concert that I found myself really engrossed with these songs these spirituals so eventually I was in my 40s when I decided to really concentrate on music and then eventually found myself concentrating on these spirituals. I had not planned that. Um, but at that point, I had already established a career for myself as a, a clinical psychologist with a specialty in African-American psychology and culture. And I, find my, I found myself merging those interests with my kind of renewed interest in music, both as a performer and then eventually as a scholar. So I ended up developing this sort of area of scholarship and studying African-American music, and particularly the spirituals that slaves created. What's your current post at the University of Denver? So I am currently Professor Emeritus at the School of Music, uh, the Lamont School of Music at the University of Denver, which is a fancy way of saying that I'm retired, but I have the opportunity to participate in university programs and to use university facilities uh, for my own work at no pay. Congratulations on the worldwide success of your book, Wade in the Water, now into its third printing. Please talk about your motivation for writing it. You know, it was a very exciting time back in the early 1990s. I was on a faculty in the psychology department at the University of Denver, and I had begun to do a whole series of lecture concert programs on spirituals and was beginning to feel like I was developing a new kind of interdisciplinary specialty. But the main reason why I 
decided to write Wade in the Water in, in particular was as I was out doing these programs, these lecture, concert, and workshop programs, I just really discovered that not many people knew very much about these spirituals. And just as I was starting to really learn, sort of develop my own research and really explore a lot of the literature and listen to old recordings or whatever, I realized that people had all kinds of confusions about what spirituals were, and not many people understood why we should try to keep these songs alive. And so the book was really an answer to, as it was a response to the experiences that I was having. You know, I wanted people to know gospel, gospel music was different from spirituals. I wanted them to, I wanted to correct a whole bunch of misperceptions mis, um, that people had about spirituals. But it was just a, just kind of an exciting project to do. So that was the reason why I got into it. And it, it, it ended, up, ended up being very satisfying. Some people confuse spirituals and gospel music, especially as they are both often sung in church. Please explain the difference. There are a couple of distinctions between spirituals and gospel music. One is, the most obvious one is chronological. Spirituals were created during slavery, before 1865, and they were created by people who were enslaved and were created for communication and singing and communal bonding within the, the, the enslaved community. Gospel music was, in a way, a follow-up to the spirituals, and it came, this, the whole genre came much later. Some people would say the beginning of the 20th century, the 1920s was when this genre flourished. And basically this music was the music that came out of the experience of people who were migrating from the South to the North to escape Jim Crow, to get jobs, to find a better life. And they had all of these hopes and dreams about how wonderful it was going to be when they got out of Mississippi and they went to Chicago or New York or Detroit or Philadelphia, and they just thought that life was going to be so much better. And in some ways it was, but in a lot of ways it was worse because they didn't have all of the community connections and close family stuff. And there was a lot of discrimination in the North. And out of the despair of that experience, they found themselves in church and the musicians that were creating music in those black church spaces found that they needed a new kind of music that would express the experience of those people. And that that's kind of a the sort of short story of how gospel music was, um, that it emerged. Um, and, you know, a lot of people would say that Thomas A. Dorsey, who was a blues musician who ended up playing in a church in Chicago, was the the father of, of gospel music. But it, it, in reality, there were lots of different people that contributed to it in different different places. And then I would say that another difference between spirituals and gospel music is that because spirituals were created in slavery, there was really the urgent issue of freedom and people wanting to get free, literally free, um, to, to get to a place where they were no longer working for their entire lives against their will in humiliating, abusive conditions. And these songs express that. Gospel music is really an urban music in a lot of ways because it's just the 
the expression of people in these urban settings, and the focus is almost almost completely on, just as the title says, on the Gospels, on the, the New Testament, that idea that hope is there and that there's a Savior that you can lean on when times are tough. That's one of the differences. One of the reasons why I think these two genres are confused is because musically, often people who sang gospel music also sang spirituals, and they sang both kinds of songs in the same style, the same musical style. So it's very understandable that people would confuse them. Uh, for example, Mahalia Jackson, who I consider the greatest gospel singer that ever lived, sang spirituals, she sang hymns, and she sang gospel music, and they all sounded the same. They came, the, the roots of the lyrics and the melodies came from different places. Much in song and musical expression is considered art. Spirituals had an important practical and psychological purpose. Please tell us how they served enslaved African Americans. The spirituals served a lot of different purposes, and one of the sort of blessings in a lot of ways was the fact that their African, the, the African roots of, of the people who were enslaved put a, a very heavy emphasis on music serving different purposes. And so that made it very convenient when those folks who came from Africa were now in North America, and they had kind of created this tool for themselves, and it too can, could serve lots of different purposes, just like music in Africa had. And so in this case, probably the most important purpose that it served was to keep people's hopes and dreams about freedom alive. And almost all of the songs, either through coded messages or almost direct out-in-front messages, reminded people that they wanted to be free and that, that they had opportunities to figure out ways to fight for their freedom, to escape slavery, to be involved in insurrections and so forth. The songs also really helped to heal the trauma that was inevitable that came out of the experience of being abused and mistreated and, and just living in a place where you're treated as less than a human being. So the dealing with trauma was there. And obviously the, the songs also deepened their faith. It's a, it's a complicated issue about how enslaved Africans were converted to Christianity. But let me just say that it wasn't the, the Christianity of the enslavers. It was what I like to call an Africanized Christianity with, that resembled a lot of what was present in the indigenous uh, re religions that they practiced. So it deepened their faith. And it also served to really bond them together as a community. It's all these different functions um, that, the, that the songs served. The resistance function obviously was served a lot by these secret encoded messages so that Swing Low Sweet Chariot could be a song that would help you know, people know that the Underground Railroad was near under the disguise of a song that seemed to be hinting that they were talking about what it would be like to go to heaven. And many, many other songs had those kind of coded messages in them. Wade in the Water, a very famous song. Is this a song that contained encoded messages? You know, Wade in the Water is a great example, uh, just like the fact that the spirituals in general serve different functions. It's also true that individual songs could serve different functions at different times. 
So wade in water, we know from today, is used as a baptismal song. Uh, and it also was used that way in slavery some of the times, um, because at times um, when enslaved Africans actually were converted to Christianity, they wanted to be baptized, and Wade in the Water was used as a baptismal song. But there are other times when uh, folks who had not actually fully converted to Christianity would sort of mimic the rite of baptism by singing the song and dunking um, each other in the river in, in, the, in the rite of baptism. But what they were actually doing was celebrating an African religious rite in which a cross, the horizontal axis of the cross, was at the sort of parallel with the surface of the water. And it was meant to encourage communication with the ancestors who lived below that level and the people who were alive who lived above that level. So that was the that was another function that this song could serve at different purposes. And probably the most famous function is the function of encouraging enslaved people as they were escaping from their plantations to make sure that they would wade in the water, like in a stream, so that they would throw the bloodhounds off their scent as they were escaping. So it's, it's a great example of one song that could serve different functions at different times. Are there different types of spirituals? Would you be willing to sing one or two of your favorites? You know, there are different kinds of spirituals. I would say probably the most uh, common distinction between songs is, um, is to call some songs jubilees, which means that they're more on an upbeat, joyful note, and sorrow songs, which express more sadness and grief and despair. My own feeling is that actually all of these songs, whether they are jubilees or sorrow songs, they always have, they always express these two poles of the enslaved African experience. One pole, the despair and the, the sadness and um, the sense of hopelessness, and then the other, the other, the other sort of pole, emotional pole, the joy, the hope, the triumph. Um, I really see, um, in a lot of ways, a connection to a lot of what people today talk about when they talk about contemplative religion, that you're able to experience these different things. And I think it's one of the geniuses of the people who created these songs who didn't know anything about all the things that people write about in these extensive academic tomes right now, but they knew how to, they knew how to survive and they knew what it was, so they would have these songs with these different poles. So probably the most famous example of a sorrow song is Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child, Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. That line, sometimes I feel like a motherless child, obviously it's expressing despair and grief and, you know, what it's like for somebody who doesn't have a mother. Everyone knows what that would be, what that might be like, that you feel that way. But you can, you can hear in the lyrics a sort of creative expression of the other side of the pole, because sometimes I feel like a motherless child implies sometimes I don't. Sometimes I feel like a child of God. There's a subtle thing in that. And there also is um, a subtle impact of singing a line like that over and over and over and over, especially when you sing it in community, 
where you start out in despair and you end up feeling in solidarity with other people who are singing it. And uh, a good example of a jubilee, and I'm not in good voice today, I have some kind of thing in my, my head, but I can get the, the melody out. In that great getting up morning, fare you well, fare you well. In that great getting up morning, fare you well, fare you well. So that, you know, that's a, a song that's sort of like coming out of the book of Revelation. And it's like, this is, there's a better day of coming. All these things that are going to happen, all these hopeful, joyful things that are going to happen. But again, it implies in that great getting up morning in the future when all that's going to happen, but we know what's happening now, which is not all that great. So you, again, the genius of the songs is they have all of these shadings and subtle differences. And even though some songs would seem to be joyful and others would seem to be sad, they all have all the shades of what happens in the experience of people who are living in a really traumatic, abusive situation. Please explain the significance of the ring dance and its influence on spirituals. So uh, the, there's this ritual that many people attribute to West Africa and different ethnic groups in West Africa, a ring dance that ended up being called the ring shout in North America. And it's a counterclockwise movement of dancing that's also accompanied by singing and also percussion. As many people know, enslaved Africans were not allowed to have drums because they thought that, that would be too dangerous, um, but they would find anything that they could, they would use anything that they could find, a stick or a broomstick or a limb from a tree, and they would use that to sort of beat the rhythm. And there are many scholars who believe that the ring shout was the ritual in which the spirituals were originally created. So if you want to know something about the foundations of, of the spirituals, you need to kind of understand the, the ring shout. Particularly, there's a historian named Sterling Stuckey who has really argued this and, and helped people to understand how important the ring shout was, and it's a continuity from Africa. Today, we're fortunate that there are some groups uh, in Georgia and South Carolina that have maintained the sort of the form of the ring shout that they perform it in public performances. They've kept this tradition alive. And it's possible because they're both the coastal regions around Georgia and South Carolina and the islands off those, those sea islands off the coast have been relatively isolated from the the mainland, and so some of these original Africanisms have been retained, so we get a chance to hear them. And probably the most famous group is the McIntosh County Shouters, and there are lots of recordings that are available on YouTube, the Smithsonian Institution, and so forth, and it's just wonderful to, to watch this ritual being done. And the folks that do it feel like it's very important that everything is done just right, and that only people that have a lot of experience with it should do it. I've cheated on this a little bit in some of my classes at the University of Denver by having students perform the ring shout, but making them promise that they don't tell anybody in Georgia or South Carolina that we're doing it because we'd be called out on not having permission to do it. But I feel like it's important for students to have this experience of what it feels like to dance in a counterclock circle and to sing these songs and get the sense of what that's like 
to have songs in your body as you're performing this kind of a kind of a kind of a ritual. To whom or what do you attribute the survival of spirituals as a music form? How have they influenced African American culture? You know, there's so many uh, things to talk about when we think about how this music has survived. My probably the the most important issue that that I would would talk about here is the fact that when music is created, this I feel this really strongly, when music is created at a time of deep personal or collective crisis, it ends up being music that really goes way beyond, transcends the communities in which it was created to become, to speak to kind of universal issues. And I think these these songs, are in a, these spirituals are an example of that. These are songs that were created in the crucible of slavery. It's a really horrible situation, um, the kind of thing that you hope no other human beings would ever have to go through again. So you're talking about things like family separation. You're talking about premature death. You're talking about abuse, um, sort of get people getting in a place where they feel like they're almost in a twilight zone, like or how could they be in such a situation? You create music in a place like that, and then you end up really touching on universal themes. Um, you know, how many of us today who are not slaves have moments, whether we have our mothers alive or not, that we feel like motherless children, or that, you know, we feel the grief that is expressed in a lot of these different songs. So that's one of the reasons why I think that the, the, the music has been passed on. But there are also some individual situations, serendipitous situations, that have really been responsible for the music kind of changing form and sort of continuing. And probably one of the most important ones was that right after slavery, there was a school in Nashville, Tennessee, that was originally called the Fisk, F-I-S-K. K Fisk School eventually became Uni Fisk University, and it was created to educate newly freed enslaved people, people who had been enslaved, and mostly to train them to be teachers. And this school very soon after it opened ran into financial difficulties in terms of trying to keep it alive. And there was a treasurer at the school who also happened to be a musician, and his name was George White. Ironically, his name was George White. He's a white, white guy. And he happened to be a musician. And he had this idea as he listened to the students who were singing some of these old songs in the hallways or whatever, that he could form an ensemble of student singers who would go out on the road and earn money to keep the, the school alive. And he ended up forming this group that became known as the Fisk Jubilee Singers, and they ended up, um, it, it, after some early stumbles and some difficulties in the beginning, in the 1870s, they ended up touring the East Coast of the United States and eventually going overseas and, and touring Europe and earning over $150,000 in, in 1870s dollars um, and to, to keep Fisk alive. And, and Fisk today uh, remains one of the most prominent schools that to educate African-American students, historically black college and university to educate Kate students. And the Fisk Jubilee Singers transformed these original folk songs into concert music. 
and they then set the stage for all kinds of other choral groups that came after them, and then eventually soloists, people like Roland Hayes and uh, Paul Robeson and Marian Anderson, and just on and on and on. And so as it became concert music, it also became very diversified. And, and then eventually there were jazz musicians that picked up on the themes of the spirituals. And today we just have all kinds of different ways in which these original songs that were created in slavery remain alive in, in, in concert forms. We also had times in the history of the African-American struggle for freedom when people have brought these songs back in the service of whatever continuing struggle was happening at the time, the most famous being the civil rights movement of the 1960s, um, in which a lot of these old spirituals were transformed into freedom songs. And so they got kept alive in that way as well. There's just a lot of ways. And, and I think that African-American musicians have always kind of relied on this foundational music for all the other genres, genres they've created. And even hip-hop, where a lot of hip-hop artists are not aware of um, the influence of the spirituals, but it's nonetheless been there in terms of the way the musical form, the rhythms, and the call-and-response form of the songs and, and so forth, and, and the improvisation that goes with it. So, so lots, of, lots of ways that the songs have been kept alive. Dr. Jones, thank you so much for joining us. It was lovely to have your expertise. We talked about a lot today. Is there anything that we missed that you would like to have included in this broadcast? We could talk for hours about different things that we haven't touched on, but one of the things that I think is one of the more interesting pieces and has there's been sort of renewed interest in this part of the story is that you know, at the turn of the the 20th century, there was a, a new school um, in New York that was created by a philanthropist named Jeanette Thurber. I think it was called the New York Conservatory of Music. And Jeanette Thurber wanted to, she, she wanted sort of some help. She was very interested in classical music, but she was wanting some help in figuring out a way that they could create a new classical school of American music. She was so aware of how much American musicians relied on the music of Europe um, when they thought about what she considered serious music. Now, we could talk about serious and what her definition of that was. She ended up recruiting a guy named Antonin, Antonin Dvorak um, to come to New York and lead this school. And she, the way she did it was basically by promising him something like three times the salary that he was getting in the work that he was doing in Europe. And so he came to New York. And one of the things that he ended up doing was developing a relationship with one of the students, a man named Harry Burley, who had grown up in Erie, Pennsylvania, and had come to the New York Conservatory to learn how to be a conductor. They offered free tuition to students that wanted that were coming from underserved backgrounds. And Dvorak was really fascinated by Burley's knowledge of Negro spirituals. And he would invite Burley to come to his home on Sunday evenings to sing some of these songs. Dvorak actually ended up incorporating some of the, some of the inspiration that he got from those songs and some of the music that he was writing. 
But more important, he ended up being very publicly vocal about the idea that any school, new school of classical music in America should be founded on the folk songs that came out of the African-American tradition, namely the spirituals, and also some Native American music. And he was very strong about this, and he had a lot of prestige. He was probably the most famous conductor in the world, conductor and composer in the world, and he thought that his opinion would carry weight, and so did Jeanette Thurber. Unfortunately, lots of people vilified him. The racism in the in the air was so strong, and it's like, are you kidding? We're going to, you know, found a, a new school based on these melodies. And so that got dropped. That whole idea got dropped. And so how the songs continued among um, classically trained musicians was mostly, mostly by African-American musicians who created symphonies that incorporated these, song, you know, themes from the songs. They created art songs and piano concertos and all kinds of other things. But a lot of that work has remained kind of in the shadows. And it's only now that people are starting to talk about it again. There's a new book out, and I wish I had the uh, book in front of me, but I know that the title of the book is called Dvorak's Prophecy, and you can look that up. And it's um, it's written by someone who's now a classical music scholar who is really advocating that we should resurrect Dvorak's project and make sure that some of the stuff that is being created by African-American composers and being performed by African-American musicians come into the mainstream and that it, it be featured in much more often in symphony concerts and operas and various other art forms. So it really does get owned by America. So I just think it's an interesting story that um, it, does, it doesn't get enough press. One of the things that I decided to do after I got involved in the early 1990s and singing spirituals and writing about them and doing workshops and whatever, I, I realized that the project that I was engaged in at that time was much bigger than me. I mean, it started out, my singing again all, all started out as that I wanted to just be doing music again. But when I found that I was stumbling into these spirituals and find, finding myself really totally preoccupied with it, I realized that I was kind of involved in some ways with a, a kind of a calling. And um, I wanted to find a way that we could contribute to other national efforts to keep the music alive, the songs alive, to teach people about them, to correct a lot of miseducation, a lot of misunderstanding about the music. And so I ended up starting out with the idea of trying to create a PBS documentary film that would tell the story of the history of the spirituals. And I got pretty far in that project, got a lot of seed money, I had, you know, um, recruited a prominent uh, film producer and director from New York, um, had a panel of academic scholars, and but the project kind of stalled when we got to the production phase because we couldn't really raise the, the enormous sums of money that were needed to do that kind of a documentary. The budget was about a half a million dollars per hour of programming. became kind of impossible to do. But I had recruited a group of people to form a new nonprofit that initially was organized around trying to get this film done. And then eventually we realized that the film was just one way 
uh, to accomplish this goal of trying to keep the songs alive. And we ended up actually forming a multi-generational, multi-racial choir to sing spirituals, much like I had been, do been doing as a soloist, that would be the ambassadors for keeping a song alive. And started out as an independent nonprofit. I was on a faculty at the University of Denver, so the university granted us, um, they were generous in granting us some some space, office space and sort of informal uh, support in a way, you know, sort of soft support, office space and computer equipment and access to the internet and that kind of thing. Um, and so we formed this choir and eventually the choir began performing, became very popular. We do a lot of performances at TU, at the University of Denver, also in the community and in a couple of regional um, tours. And eventually, as the choir grew in popularity and the organization actually earned a mayor's award for excellence, excellence in the arts, the chancellor of the university back in 2014 and 15 and I got engaged in some, some talks about the project actually becoming a formal program of the University of Denver. And in 2016, the Independent Spiritualist Project organization actually transitioned to a, a formal program of the Lamont School of Music. And, and I was uh, the chair of a search to find a, a nationally renowned choir director to come in who would be the director for the project at the university and also would direct the choir, conduct the choir. And it's been a huge success. If you Google Spirituals Project, it will take you to the page at the Lamont School of Music that allows you to, to look at who we are and some of the story of how it was founded and a schedule of performances and the kinds of things. There's also a, there's a link on there to a, a documentary film that actually did get made, which was sort of surprising after we had just gotten all just discouraged about doing this and we sort of gave up on the film project. There was a local film director who uh, approached us and asked us if he could have our permission to do a film that he would obtain the funding for that would profile the Spiritualist Project Choir and the work that it's, it was doing and also tell a little bit of the history of the spirituals. So that film is called I Can Tell the World. And when you go to the, the, the Spiritualist Project page at the Lamont School of Music, you can click on a link and you can watch that whole whole film, which is kind of a, it's a smaller scale um, um, not quite the the kind of large-scale project that I had originally wanted to do, but it's a really, really wonderful film, and people get to know a little bit about the culture of the Spiritualist Project. Today's episode was produced by Susan Bellate, with contributions from Janice Pugh and myself. I'm your host, Vincent Hostack. Learn more about the Spiritualist Project at the Lamont School of Music by visiting our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash Crossings Refugees. We'll be back soon with additional stories on the abolitionists and the Underground Railroad and episodes on contemporary refugee resettlement and culture. Thank you for listening.